16 years old when Linkin Park released their debut album, Hybrid Theory, in 2000. And I remember vividly just how much that album resonated with me. A junior in high school, I found solace in the sonically aggressive production, paired with the angst-ridden and vulnerable lyrics. As a teenager, and like other fans at the time, I was learning how to both understand and process emotional awareness while navigating adolescent complexities around what it meant to fit in. Despite being generally popular, I felt an overwhelming feeling of exclusion and misunderstanding. Lincoln Park served as a means of escape, allowing me the comfort of camaraderie through euphonic comfort. Mike Shinoda is a man of many talents, truly. But if you recognize the name, it's likely due to your familiarity with the band Lincoln Park. Mike Shinoda, Rob Orden, and Brad Delson were friends and bandmates while attending high school in Agora Hills, California, a Los Angeles suburb. But it was post-graduation when the group began to take their musical pursuits seriously. Failing to land a record deal, growing pains and frustration led to an amicable split with the band's first vocalist and resulted in the band finding their critical missing link, Chester Bennington. Bennington, originally from Arizona, went from being a group outlier to the band's frontman, quickly developing a fresh synergy and choral dynamic with Shinoda. Linkin Park catapulted towards international recognition and fame with Hybrid Theory. The album sold more than 5 million copies in its debut year and was the top-selling album of 2001. At the start of the new millennium, music television channels such as MTV and VH1 continued to be at the forefront of popular culture, introducing and universalizing the next generation of musical phenomena. Mainstream radio was dominated by boy bands like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, plus the widely accepted presence of white male rappers expressing authority in hip-hop. Linkin Park added to these genre-bending classifications, synthesizing rock, rap, and metal. They topped the charts again with Meteora and Minutes to Midnight, establishing themselves as one of the most prolific and influential bands of the decade. Linkin Park worked with iconic creative and musical contributors such as Rick Rubin, Hans Zimmer, Rakim, System of a Down, Rage Against the Machine, and countless others, and bringing another three critically acclaimed albums into fruition, A Thousand Sons, Living Things, and The Haunting Party. With a total of 67 music awards, Linkin Park was perceived as a band that knew how to evolve and achieve continued success through genuine creative exploration, risk-taking, and band unification. We often find it surprising that within smashing career acclaim, one could harbor deeply rooted sadness. But on July 20th, 2017, the world learned that Chester Bennington took his own life at the age of 41. It was known that Chester channeled through his music memories of sexual abuse and other childhood pain points that ultimately led to substance and alcohol use and addiction. But Shinoda and Linkin Park fans could have never braced themselves for such a tragic loss. When I learned that I would be interviewing Mike Shinoda for this assignment, I was both excited and terrified. To meet someone who helped guide me through my formative years was nothing short of intimidating and overwhelming. But interviews like these are heartbreakingly therapeutic because what you share with your heroes is a mutual understanding of human suffering and sadness. And regardless of social status or position, mental health is universally felt. Mike Shinoda discusses this importance personally and profoundly. In this day and age, Celebrities are scrutinized way more than five, 10 years ago. Mm. So in 2018, what does celebrity mean to you? And how do you think celebrity differs from the perception of our celebrity in the past? 
just a little by way of a, like a little bit of background on me. I guess first I should say like I grew up you know drawing and painting and playing piano and those are all very especially at the time they were just nerdy things to do. I wasn't like playing music where my, like a lot of friends or a lot of people at school would be like, "Yo, have you heard that guy?" More like I played piano. Did humor me, but it wasn't cool. The art thing was more utilitarian. It's like, will you draw a poster for our football game? Will you draw this so we can put it on a t-shirt or on the yearbook? I went to school for design and art and the music just kind of took off. So I ended up doing it because I loved it. And it was like a winning lottery ticket. It was like, wow, I can't believe I get the opportunity to do this. I'm so lucky. So I remember distinctly the first time when the, the band was really blowing up and we had a single that was like on the radio and I remember going to one of our shows and seeing people in the crowd that I wouldn't be friends with. I would never. I, at one point, actually, I, this, I mean, the most extreme example of it was I, I was outside of one of our early, early shows and there was like a skinhead kid who was like, well, I love your band. And I was like, oh, you're a fucking skinhead. Like what? I didn't say anything. I just kind of moved on. But if it was me now, like I would have actually probably engaged them and been like, what is the deal? Like, why? Like, what is it about yeah. our music that's resonating? Right. What yeah. am I doing wrong? Right, right. <laughs> but I think where I was kind of going with this is there was a, a few years later, I did a show. This is a long time ago now, but I did a couple art shows, a two-part theme that was about celebrity. And it was about basically a, a faceless, nameless skeleton character who became famous for no other reason than being famous. It was around the time of beginning of like Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie's thing. And then Britney Spears like shaved her head. And eventually it went all the way to the point where as I was, the art was on the walls and the premiere for the second show was happening. Just a few weeks before, I think it was like a week or two weeks before that Michael Jackson died. Mm. And in the show already was stuff about Princess Diana and all of this stuff about celebrity because it was really exploring the fact that I've gotten myself into this situation being known by all these people. And it, I, I'm in it for the art of it, for the fun of doing it. I mean, of course, I appreciate being able to make an incredible, better, better than make a living doing it. But it was never for me, it was, it's never been about like, hey, look at me, I'm famous. Right. I could actually really do without that for it to culminate in that way where Michael Jackson passes away and like one of the greatest, one of the biggest celebrity death moments happens like right on top of the show. Did it you feel really, at that time that it was super gimmicky what we were sort of considering popular culture? What was crazy in that moment was when he died, he had a long career. He started as a child pop star. So to have two, three decades of being the biggest R&B pop singer in the world, that's a lot of time for people to say that they're your friend or that they were your co-collaborator. So as soon as he passed away, every single radio station in the world, every single news publication, every single outlet you can think of had somebody on who was a friend of his or worked with him. And it took no time at all for C-list celebrities and garbage people to be on CNN. And that, for me, that was like a big turning point that got us where we are today because you could see very quickly how the threshold at which they would say, oh, this person is worth putting on the air and this person's not, the threshold started to just kind of evaporate. Mm -hmm. And these days now with being able to quantify 
a celebrity's value in terms of followers on any individual social media platform, whether that's because they are, they're just funny and they make little Vine style videos or they just wear bikinis and that's all they do and they get free product. And that's basically the routine. They have no problem putting those people on the news. It's just gotten really, it's an inch deep and a mile wide. And what do you think that says about us? as we're consuming and popularizing this sort of cultural behavior and and what we're considering to be consumption worthy as an artist and and someone who truly values the craft and the time spent and involved. Does that infuriate you or do you almost see it as an opportunity to continue to uphold? Well, yeah, that's a good point. I definitely think that when I hear music that's created by somebody that I know has the attention to craft and the skills when it's not just kids screwing around in their bedroom, like whatever the opposite of that is. Like, by the way, I'm not dissing that. Like, I think that everybody's got to start somewhere, but who's going to get my respect? Who do I listen to? And I go, wow, how did they do that? But to me, that is kind of a, uh, one of the ways, one of the lenses through which I, I view something and maybe judge it. Here's a couple things though. Number one, Our brains are wired in such a way that when we see somebody's face enough times, our brain doesn't just say, oh, I recognize that famous person. Your brain on a primal level actually says, that is my friend. And it's built in from caveman times when you would be running around with other people and with rocks and spears trying to kill tigers and whatever. (laughs) Like you're just trying to survive. And if you see other Neanderthals who you recognize, the chances are if you've seen them before and they didn't kill you or attack you, then they were your friend and your brain is hardwired in. In fact, in my second show, which was called Glorious Excess Dies, I sold a book with it and, we, and I went into detail inside the book about that particular subject. So fast forward to modern times, you see a, a celebrity's face enough times, whether you follow them and that's you're seeing them in your feed all the time, or they just show up in your, the news that you read or the shows that you watch. They become part of your friend group, your family, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. And so you have this greater effect. I mean, how else would you describe somebody who, when Mac Miller passes away and you've never met Mac Miller, you don't know him at all. And people are crying, right? And some people even say that, like, I don't even know why I'm crying. Why does this bother me so much? Part of it is that because your brain is saying, no, that's your friend. I guess one other thing I'd say, mm-hmm. we do have a responsibility in the sense that on the whole, so many of us, we have more people listening than ever before. Yep. We've made more connections and followers. I've got, I don't know how, I've got a million something on uh, followers on Instagram. So it's pretty obvious that I have a responsibility to those people if I'm going to talk about something that could potentially affect them, or I just have to be responsible about the way I talk about things. Right. But let's say you're a kid in high school and you may not think of yourself as an influencer, but you actually have like a couple hundred followers. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have 200 followers, maybe you have 500 followers. Can you imagine being on a stage in front of 500 people, how differently you'd speak to them versus the kid who's on their phone in the car behind their friend and they're just like, you know, mental vomit, Right. whatever pops into their head. Oh, this is funny. This is whatever. I'm going to retweet this. I'm just going to troll this person. 
they're doing those things, but they're not really realizing the actual power they have. And the power is split into, I mean, many facets of it, I'm sure. But, you know, one thing would be that they have the power to accidentally harm somebody mm-hmm. or accidentally lift somebody up. I think Twitter is really particularly interesting platform because their whole thing is built on retweets, right? It's all built on somebody else has said something and everybody else says, yeah, me too. And they, they don't realize that your ability to push the button and what you share is actually generating money. Mm. Our current president knows all about, knows all about that. About monetizing. Ugh, I don't even want to, <laughs> I don't even want to get into that. I opened, yeah. Right. <laughs> If you're an average 16-year-old, you are the one that every company wants. They want to get your attention. They want you to be retweeting and reposting, et cetera. They want your favorites. They want your likes. They want your money. Mm -hmm. And if you're just haphazardly doing that, you're literally spending virtual currency. Your attention is your currency. Right. You're just giving it away. Mm -hmm. Knock it off. Mm Like you can't just retweet everything. You gotta be more sensible. Like you're so powerful. Stop being so like careless with it. Right. It's like spontaneous behavior. Yeah. Immediate. There's no filter. To your point earlier, when you know you have a a speech that you're gonna speak to an audience publicly, you're prepared. Right. You mentally prepare. You have your monologue. You know exactly what strategically the message is going to be. Right. When you have a little device on your hand, it's just, it's too immediate. Oh, so I actually kind of glanced over and I didn't quite get to the point on this thing. If you've got 200 followers and you, like I said, you imagine yourself in front of a crowd of 200 people, how would you talk? You talk much differently than people do online. Right. The other thing is I've been talking about like mental health. I just did, it wasn't only a collaboration in a traditional sense, but my friend is a TV writer named DJ, uh, DJ Nash. And DJ did a new show called A Million Little Things. Mm-hmm. It's all about a cast of characters. The, the main hub of the friends, the guy who brought everybody together, the most successful, he's the happiest, he's the best guy. They all love him more than everybody. And in the very first episode, he, he basically locks in a business deal, which secretly benefits one of his friends. And then he jumps off a building. And everybody's like, wait, what? What? John was the happiest guy. He's the best guy. Like what of all of us, how could it possibly have been John? So this is his show. And DJ was like, it's based in some experiences with a real friend. It was Mm -hmm. inspired by something like that. And he talked to me often about, am I getting the tone right on this? Like you understand this. Is it reading right? Is it sounding right? So I was really proud to be part of that. And when I was doing it, I was realizing, man, you know, people are being more and more aware of using appropriate language and appropriate approaches when you're talking about suicide. So for example, a lot of mental health professionals will prefer that you say died by suicide instead of saying committed suicide because committed is always like committed a crime, committed adultery, committed bad things, right? There's a negative connotation. Yeah, and they suggest it's more sensitive to say died by. It's a very small difference, but just choose the other one. Of course. And then there are other things like if you do have a piece of news, a story where somebody died by suicide, then some guidelines are don't get into gory details. Mm -hmm. Definitely don't put pictures up and so on and so forth because there could be somebody reading who actually is in the highest level of danger. Right. And if they see that stuff, it can trigger them and they can just spiral and that could be the end of everything. So obviously the stakes are as high as they get. 
if you're a kid or a person with 200, 300, 400, 500 followers, if you're just like a high school student or a college student, you probably don't know those guidelines. You probably never heard that stuff before because they're aiming that stuff at the press. But aren't these young people powerful? If I'm following you and you're not thinking and you just say something really graphic or post something crazy, I didn't get a warning. Like I didn't get a chance to avoid it. And all of a sudden I open up that social media app and I saw it and who knows what could happen. That was a thing that I realized this year, like, oh man, the same way you'd be conscious about how you speak about mental health, you wouldn't want to offend your friends. Of course. People put filters in place like so they don't curse in front of their parents. Your brain just tells you, hey, FYI, remember, there are consequences. You, 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 know, you say certain words in front of certain people, you get in big trouble, just don't do it. And it's easy to write it in. That was one of the things that I realized this year. You were talking earlier just how easy and, and accessible it is for folks to be glamorized and for a small, simple talent to be honored yeah. <laughs> instead of popularized. Why do you think as a society, we become fixated with celebrity status in life? What is it that we find so appealing and attractive? Mm. And conversely, how does that perception mislead us? I feel like over time, the average level of noise keeps increasing. The amount of traffic and drama and, and the stories that go on, particularly in social media, there's so many more stories. They're so much more dramatic or offensive or crazy. There'd be no way five years ago that Kanye West would have to do the kind of insane things that he's doing right now just to make headlines. I mean, maybe he's just making bad choices. In my opinion, he certainly is, but there's no way that he would have to do the MAGA hat with the Kaepernick shirt and then go and say the things about slavery and then go say the things about this and that. It's sad. It's just sad. Lil Wayne came out with his record. Personally, I'm sure there were some stories to be had about some of the drama with his label and the lawsuits and some of his past. I'm sure that stuff was out there. I actually didn't hear very much of it, but I heard the record came out. I think he's great. I went and listened to the record. I'm like, wow, he's just such a talent. And it was a beautiful experience listening to the record. I was very excited about it. And I think he's great. I really appreciate what he does. And I somehow feel, as we speak right now, like Kanye's record's not out. I somehow feel it's not going to matter how great Kanye's record is. It's already ruined for me in my mind because of the drama and the goofy stuff that's yep. going on. He's so, yeah. alienating a large oh. audience base of his. But it's not Sorry. just him. Like back to your question, it's so noisy. If you imagine yourself in a room full of uh, a thousand people, everybody's talking at a normal volume. Mm -hmm. And then a couple people start raising their voices. Then the other people have to raise their voices and everybody has to raise their voice. And then the one person who started it now has to get loud. And it just, it will escalate to the point of everybody screaming. And right now I feel like that's where we're at. We're basically at this point of everybody on the internet is screaming. Mm -hmm. And to cut through the noise, you need to just be completely, just the loudest, ab abrasive, aggressive thing. I mean, that's politically, that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. That's in entertainment, that's what's going on. I don't like it. Actually, the, the funny thing is most of my friends who I think are probably the smartest people that I know, uh, I'd say a lot of them are in more innovative industries, tech and business in that sense, but also people who are great creators. 
from Kevin Rose and Chris Saka to Rick Rubin, a lot of these people are really on a limited social media and internet diet. Kevin Rose actually posted a cool thing the other day. He simply took a rubber band and stuck it on his phone right around the middle. And he said, putting a rubber band on my phone has decreased my pickups. His effort is, I don't want it to be second nature. I don't want my phone to just rule me all day. Like I want to look at that device and say, is it important that I pick it up right now? Mm-hmm. And then pick it up. So the rubber band for him helps him do that. But isn't even the need for tactics like mm. that to eliminate how we are so inclined to just pick up our phone? Yeah. We are now trained instinctively to do that. Pick up, to share, to engage, to participate. To your point about the loudest one in the room and, and that just escalating. Why are we so obsessed with that? Why are we allowing that narrative or lack thereof? Yeah. I'm sure we could all come up with our reasons why. For me, the question is, what are we going to do about it? I'm not on my phone all day. I have certain rules in the house. Basically, we don't allow devices at the dinner table. Mm. That's one big thing. Mm -hmm. Circling back to the mental health thing, if I wake up in the morning and I go, oh, I just don't feel very good. For whatever reason, mentally, I'm not feeling 100%. I just don't feel a little sad. That's a day where it's more than a perfectly good idea. It's actually a great idea to say, oh yeah, my routine is if I feel less than 100%, then I don't go on Twitter. It's like the same thing as like, oh, I have a cold. I'm going to take a DayQuil. Today, I'm not feeling 100%. So my prescription is I need to stay off of something that's going to make me feel worse for sure. There's no way it's not. Because we are so predisposed to only sharing our best selves. Mm. We're constantly seeing like this highlights reel, so to speak. Mm. Is there a responsibility for aspirational entertainers and celebrities who do have such a mass following and can reach such a large audience almost do the exact opposite and say, you know what, I'm feeling down and that's okay. Let me engage with my audience. Like we could nurture ourselves and nurture this community. So it's a complex world out there, but bottom line is, I don't think there are hard and fast rules. It's just like a piece of music. You can do something that you make and you go, wow, I've really stretched myself. This is something I've never done. It's really exciting to me. I put my heart and soul into this. The music is the best music I've written and you can put it out and people are like, boring. Mm -hmm. I don't believe you and this song sucks. And so it's in the eyes of the beholder. How do you stay true to your art? viewing it as a source of catharsis Mm. versus making something commercially viable? Oh, I mean, that's the age old question, isn't it? That'll be the struggle till the end of time. Do you go in with that mindset? My personal approach is generally to create, I usually don't go in with an idea of what it's for. There are exceptions, of course, like I've done movie scores and I've done songs for themes for people's TV shows. Then you're going in with an intention. But if I'm making a song, I go in with whatever the purest version of like, what's it for? As you're working on it, you listen back. And like I said, I grew up drawing and painting. Like when I was in art school, you'd sketch something. And one of the things you had to do, there were different techniques to be able to see your own work you could get up and walk across the room and look at it from far away. You could put a mirror up to it and look at it in reverse. And surprisingly, that's a big thing with a lot of animators, character designers, and so on, is there's an option in the menu to flip your piece horizontally. So let's say you're drawing somebody's face. 
you'll be drawing it and you'll be like, yeah, that looks great. And then you'll flip it horizontally and you'll go, oh my God, this eye is too high. This nostril's too big. Like you notice all kinds of stuff all of a sudden. Musically, when you're creating, I think we all have these little tools, little tricks to help us see or hear our thing better. When I view entertainment, oftentimes it's a form of escapism. Oh, okay. okay. And then there's other times where, you know, there's certain artists I listen to that are going to serve a, a certain mood that I'm in. Yeah. As an artist... And in today's sort of consumption landscape, can an artist approach their work with that sort of symbiotic relationship? Yeah. Apply this art form as a form of escapism while. Yeah. To your point, whatever metrics you measure it by, whether it's conscious or or not, you know, let's say consciously you go in and say, is do I like this? Mm -hmm. Is this connecting with me? Is it fun to listen to? Is it meaningful to listen to? There's all these things your brain in milliseconds is like gauging and constantly like judging it, right? Right. For some people too, they'll come to the song and be like, I don't like this at all. This is fucking terrible. And then they'll listen to it a second time and they'll grow on them. I will say that for me, it's always like, I do start with more of a blank canvas Mm -hmm. and try to approach it as like, what does the thing want to be? There was actually a really interesting old TED talk by Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, which I haven't even read, by the way, was just having this like artistic existential crisis where I was just like, I'm garbage. It's over. I'm the worst. I'll never make anything good again, you know? And I mean, I joke about it, but it's a less extreme version of those same feelings. And my wife said, you should listen to this. I heard this at some point and it talks about that. And it really did actually help. So if anybody's dealing with that thing, they can go listen to it. One thing that she really talked about was that she wrote this book, it was a freakish success. And then she was trying to follow it up. And it's like, well, what if that's my greatest success and it's behind me and I will never write anything that popular or that good again? Like forget popular. I may not write anything that good ever again. I just may suck suck from now on. And I'll always measure myself to that Mm -hmm. and it won't be as good and I'll have performance anxiety and I'm just, I peaked early. (laughs) Um, and so what she was talking about is that in, I think it was the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, the way they saw genius, the idea of genius was that it was not you. It was not you. Socrates called them daemons. The Romans thought of genius as actual gods or like deities that like lived somewhere else. And when you had a good idea, it was because a a genius came to you and like acted through you and you were chosen for the moment. Hmm. And then if it didn't happen the next time, you couldn't beat yourself up because it wasn't you in the first place. And it lowers the pressure. I don't know if if I'm kind of extrapolating. Would artists like Kurt Cobain have taken his life, you know, like Chester, Mm -hmm. would they have taken their lives because they just had this pressure and this feeling of, the best days are already over or they just can't see where, you know, there's, there's a lot of pressure and they can't see where anything good is going to, or great is going to happen again. Right. It's a very hard line to straddle as an artist because so much greatness comes from expression when you're at your lowest. Some of the greatest songs that are tried and true and classic stem from a, a place of Discouragement? For some people, for some people. And by the way, I was like growing up, I was definitely one of those people. Most of the stuff I listened to was, it was all like senses of frustration, senses of injustice Mm -hmm. or like depression or something. Mm -hmm. So like I loved 
Nine Inch Nails. I loved Public Enemy. The point is that I do also realize now that Bill Withers, and mm. he's he just a genius. Mm-hmm. And he had these amazing songs like Lean On Me. And, and it's one of those songs where when you hear it and if you listen to the lyrics, it's like, he's not the one who's broken. He's reaching out to somebody else and he's like, you can lean on me. And it's like, there's a way to do that. That's still tapping into like a compassion. Yeah. That, that it's, it's a bit scary though, to be that vulnerable. There are also a lot of artists who think that, oh no, I, I was super depressed when I made this song and it was popular. So now I have to be depressed to write good songs. Oh, I made this song while I was super duper high. Mm-hmm. I was just wasted and that was a hit. So now every song I have to be like that. That's so scary. How do you define happiness? Like, do we overrate it? The American dream, there's always a a superficial, materialistic sort of value that that's measured by. You achieve a certain size house, you achieve a car, you've obviously achieved success. Sort of going back to my earlier question, like we say, like, why are we so fixated? General audiences become obsessed with this idea of celebrity and entertainment because they're, they're holding that as being a more valuable person to mm-hmm. society because you've achieved a certain level of success and now you own X amount of things yeah. that serve as a status symbol and yeah. that automatically equals happiness, which then in turn creates ridiculous expectations for mm-hmm. an artist. So as someone who's been low, high, low, high, instead mm-hmm. of like gone through all those waves and successes and downfalls, how do you measure success? How do you measure happiness today versus maybe, you know, the well, less successful. I, I think I think one thing that, that I'm grateful for is that when the band really started, like I said, I, we were chasing an artistic goal more than having stuff or getting people's attention. Like we always tried to do magazine covers with all six of us if they would do it. They were mm-hmm. trying to sell Chester's face number one, my face number two. We still had to cave occasionally and like, okay, well, if you want the cover of this magazine, then you've got to do it with you and Chester. So yeah, back to what makes you happy. Early on, the van got popular very fast. We got famous before we got money. That's the way the music industry works. The money is always quote unquote, that the term is in the pipeline. So meaning we had sold 15 million records before I had really enough money to buy like a new car. Chester was literally driving around a PT cruiser. It was pretty hysterical. And we had three number one rock songs at that point. We gave him crap for that car. (laughs) What color was it out of curiosity? It was sparkling purple with flames on the front. He had a friend who customized cars. He got the rims done. He got it lowered. He got flames on the front. It was glitter purple. I'm so glad I asked that question. It was amazing. So it wasn't just your average PT cruiser. It was was hysterical. (laughs) And the funny thing is too, like think about the timing. Like when he first got it, it was like, that's a really nice car. Right. And then very quickly it was like, why does that guy not have like a Range Rover, like a Mercedes? Like right. what is he driving that car for? I hear his song on the pop radio right. station all the time now. And he's driving around that piece of shit. Like what's going decision. on? Yeah, no, it was not a modest decision. <laughs> the money was in the pipeline. So we were famous and eventually the record did what it did and we went straight into the next record. Public perception of the band was ahead of the band's reality by a long shot the whole way through the first two records. So four years later, four years into our career, we finally wrapped up touring, came home and took a break. We looked around and we were like, whoa, what the fuck? Like everything has changed. I can buy a house. I can buy like a nice house. This is crazy. And that was a point when 
all of the guys, like we had a lot of really cool personal conversations about happiness. None of us bought a Ferrari. None of us went crazy with spending and whatever. I think this is the most important thing that I figured out at around that time. That most of my worst human experiences, they happen because of lack of control. The bad feelings you feel when somebody doesn't want to be your friend, mm-hmm. doesn't want to date you, or you break up with somebody, or how you your relationship with your parents, or someone gets sick, mm-hmm. or somebody dies, or an accident happens. No control. That's always, it's always no control. Right. It's like, oh, I'm stressed out because I went to the doctor and they did tests and they have to get back to me for in a week. I want to know. I can't know. You yeah. can't know. You have no control. Right. And that feeling of not being able to do anything about stuff is like the one of the worst human feelings. So I applied that to the music. I mm-hmm. applied that to the way I do things. Either I try to do things that I kind of have some control over mm-hmm. or I accept the fact that I don't actually have control and I make my purpose about something else. So in mm-hmm. other words, if you go into an album, you've made, you've put nine months into a record and somebody will ask you, aren't you nervous that it's very different record? Like, aren't you nervous that people won't buy it? If your reason for making it is because you enjoyed making it mm-hmm. or because you have something to say, versus like I'm making it so people will buy it, then you're going to be happy. By the time I put a record out, I'm already happy with Mm -hmm. the record. I'm Mm -hmm. already at the finish line because it's done. If nobody buys the record, that's fine Mm -hmm. because I did my part. And that's the goal. Do you feel like due to circumstances that you've become this ambassador and are you happy to do so? Or is that just awfully uncomfortable? Yeah, that's a great question. I often tell people that I'm a member of a club I never wanted to be a part of. That's obviously a really weird feeling. Chester's widow, our friend Talinda, she works with a woman named Dr. Barbara. She runs an organization called Change Direction. There's 320 is Talinda's uh, offshoot of it. And Barbara oftentimes will talk to us in that circle because She's a doctor, like she's been doing mental health and suicide prevention and awareness for her whole career and knows that oftentimes the inclination is to feel like we don't have the kind of expertise she does. So why should we be speaking about it? And she has reminded us that we have an experience, regardless of education and academics, we have an experience that is unfortunately kind of prevalent Mm -hmm. and we have a platform to talk about it and let other people know that like them, like we've gone through this too. And these are some things that we've learned and she has been giving us tools. I do a fair bit of reading. It's not hunting down psychological papers and analysis on mental health. However, I know that I've got that platform. I've got the responsibility. There are fans who follow me, who deal with depression, who have always dealt with depression. Mm -hmm. That was always part of the kind of the signature element of the lyrics that Chester and I both wrote. So yeah, so we've taken on that responsibility. That's part of our reality. You know, oftentimes when we wake up with a physical ailment or like we're not feeling a hundred percent, whether it's like my back hurts or my leg hurts or I have a cold, nobody's ever ashamed of that. It's like, oh, my back hurts. I got to take it easy. Mm -hmm. Oh, my back really hurts. I got to go to my doctor. Right oh, my back is not going to get better unless I take medication. You know, there's levels. Now we're starting to realize that mental health is actually the same way. 
what it requires on your part is to ask yourself, how do I feel? That's the only part that's kind of missing is people kind of forget, take stock. Pain is something that will hit you over the head. Mental health, you have to check in with it. Once you do that, you go, oh, wait, I actually don't feel good. Mm -hmm. And maybe I need to take it easy. Maybe I need to see a doctor. Maybe I need to take some medication. When you experience physical pain, you can't control that. It's involuntary. It sort of happens to you. Whereas mental health, there's a stigma attached because the perception is it's learned behavior. It's self-created behavior. I, that's such BS. Oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah. And at, at this point, it starts to dovetail with gender equality and perception issues. Like, so the reason I say that is if you say I can't come into work today because my back went out, mm-hmm. your, your boss will say, okay, right. man or woman, they'll say, okay. Mm-hmm. But if you call into work and say, I am depressed, they will say bullshit. Basically on one hand, they can be like, I'm sorry. I don't care if you're sad, you need to come to work. Exactly. Another option would be that they would say, uh, okay. And hang up the phone and then go talk to everybody else about you, mm-hmm. which is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And then compound that with the fact that, is it a man or is it a woman calling in? Mm-hmm. Like then it gets even more, more tricky. And- I saw something, I retweeted this the other day. This woman asked a question for my female followers. What would you do if men had a 9 p.m. curfew? If there were no men on the streets after 8 or 9 p.m., what would you do? And then she added at the end, men, please pay attention to these responses. And it was powerful. Like some people didn't get it, of course. There were so many responses saying, the format was, I would do fill in the blank and the the context was because I wasn't afraid to get raped. I think sometimes we live in our little personal, you know, comfort zones and bubbles and it takes conversations like those to help us get out of them and go, wow, that really made me think I'm going to be a lot more sensitive to that. We talked a lot of shit about the internet and social media, but that was a moment for me where I went like, thank God for the social media. The platform, yeah. yes. There w- wouldn't really be another format for you to ask that question, get those responses and for it to be as powerful, mm-hmm. except for Twitter. Right. Given the current political and social landscape, Me Too movement, et cetera, we're seeing that shift and we're seeing that change. Part of my question was like, what can we do? And I think we are actually doing that currently. Mm-hmm. We're, we're engaging, we're sort of changing the narrative. Would you like to see more of that? You know what I'm proud of? I agree that the narrative's changing and I'm actually really happy that it's coming mostly from young people. Mm-hmm. Like I, it's not exclusive, right? but I think young people need to own it. Young people, high school, college age, maybe a little bit older are really the ones fueling it all. And truth be told, again, to just bring it way back full circle, as soon as those people realize that they've got all the power, they have Mm -hmm. so much power. They have the power of their attention, which is the power of corporate money. Who are you advertising to? You're advertising to college and high school kids. Mm -hmm. Whose attention do you want when it comes to your music, your commercials, your fashion, your product, and so on? If it's not young people championing it, then it's probably not going to work. And when the young people say like, this is the way we want the world to be, everyone else is going to have to just bend to that eventually because they're the ones who, who have all the power. And by the way, like they're also the ones who are going to be around longer. Like these 70, 80 year old people running these corporations and sitting in public office are going to die to be blunt. (laughs) Quantity over quality. Now we're seeing that matched. What I'm 
curious about is I grew up at a time where there was a lot of very rebellious art that was anti, just anti what old people would be wanting or what they would do. But there was a big difference between Public Enemy and Two Live Crew. And right now, I don't even know what is the public enemy now. That's the thing I'm missing. Like, I think Kendrick's doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. Old versus. What I like about how they do it is it's in the music, but it's not all the music. Mm-hmm. They know to balance, to balance it out with other things and they live it. Mm-hmm. And they go and make efforts in real life. And mm-hmm. those get, you know, make their way around in, the, in, in our news but cycle. But sh- that should be a call to action. To entertainers. Yeah. Yeah. But that's just only as a function of like musicians and artists being part of the culture, mm-hmm. right? I think sometimes they lead the culture and other times they're just part of the culture. Because sometimes it's just a kid from a high school who said, I've had enough. They give an impassioned speech and become Emma Gonzalez, you know? Right. Um, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any questions that I did not ask that did not trigger a response that you perhaps would want to No, man. I'm just... With? This has been really fun. And I think talking about substance, substantive things is, it's always really engaging for me, but also I feel like what's nice is sometimes people come to listen to stuff because they just see a name. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's goes back to the beginning of the conversation. It's because of the fame thing. If we can give them some new information and inspire along the way, then that's the bonus, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful last statement. (laughs) It is said that today we are more connected than ever before. We are a globalized community with an almost ubiquitous ability to broadcast and consume as much digital information and content our eyes and brains can comfortably stomach. We are swimming through pools of social networks appearing remarkably content, but we should sometimes wonder if a floating device is necessary. With an ability to harness camaraderie as instantaneously as our devices allow, we could be just as sensitive to self-criticism as we are to self-promotion as open to self-preservation as we are self-gratification. We are no longer living in a time where topics of mental illness and depression are considered taboo. In fact, we have an innumerable amount of social resources that allow for not only a communal understanding, but support. 